0: Today I want to talk about the parables of Jesus, particularly we're going to talk today about the parable of the talents. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, but we're we're going to get there in a few minutes. I want to give a little bit of an introduction to parables. Jesus often taught with metaphor and with story, using pictures and images, not a real didactic teacher. Um, Jesus often taught by using these striking images, striking scenarios, but of course we kind of understand why, right? I mean, There are certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of thought patterns that are not going to be transformed because of logic and because of, of presenting uh, just point by point material. If you really want to change somebody's heart and you really want to change somebody's behavior, you've got to motivate them emotionally. The information has eventually got to move from head to heart. And so Jesus talks with metaphor. In short versions, he talks in parables in these stories. But it causes some problems for us reading 2,000 years later. For one thing, we're not used to this kind of teaching. A lot of us don't think in terms of parable, we don't think in terms of story, though I think our culture is moving back to story, we are used to much more sort of logical point-by-point teaching. And so we kind of want Jesus to get to the point sometimes, right? Or at least explain what your point is. I mean, we don't do that with normal stories, right? If somebody starts telling you about their vacation and showing you pictures of where they went, you don't get to the end of their telling you about their vacation and say, well... What was the point of that? What was the lesson? You'd be rude if you asked somebody what was the point every time they told you a story. Sometimes the point of the story is just the story. We sometimes are like that with Jesus, I think. We want him to get to the point, but sometimes the wrestling with the story is the point. It's a very Jewish way of teaching, and we are frankly not very Jewish. The challenge of parables is further uh, problematic for us because Jesus often taught parables using very common imagery that made a ton of sense 2,000 years ago. doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We've never seen a shepherd Okay, a lot of us have never been around shepherds, a lot of us have never seen a fig tree, we don't do weddings the same way, we don't light our home with candles anymore, and so a lot of the images that made perfect sense to people back then, where Jesus didn't have to explain it a lot, takes a little bit of work for us to get back into that mode of thinking. Another problem with parables is that Jesus teaches some big, complicated uh, things with parables. Two in particular, and Jesus is playing with both of these in our parable today. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. Kingdom is even a hard word for us because we don't really have kingdoms anymore. You might think of the democracy of God, the rule of God, the leadership of God, perhaps. The congress of God, I, I don't know what you might Put there in that place. But kingdom doesn't connect with us as well. But Jesus was constantly talking about how he is now ruling. He is now somehow having an influence in leading the world because he has arrived. And that kingdom somehow is tied to his followers. That we as Jesus' followers have a part in that kingdom. Jesus once said that the kingdom of God is within you. That somehow in our actions and in our work in the world we are part of this kingdom. Jesus also in his parables teaches about his return. The idea is that someday Jesus is going to return and he's going to rule without us in the middle. He's going to rule and everything's going to be made right and there's not going to be one part of this world that is no longer under his dominion. But those are kind of hard grand concepts for us to grasp and so it causes us problems sometimes in our parables. The fourth problem I think we have with parables is that Jesus often talks about money in parables. And we a lot of times don't like to talk about money, particularly in the church. But the thing about money, and the reason why I think Jesus uses money so much in his parables, is that money does really relate to what kingdom you are talking about, doesn't it? I mean, depending on what kingdom you're in, you you can tell kind of based on the faces that are on your money, right? Right? You go to another country, you're not going to use the same dollars because you're in a different kingdom. In fact, Jesus made a point of that, right? Who's on that coin? Well, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. By talking about money, Jesus is able to really talk about kingdoms because finances are one of the ways we really establish what kingdom we belong to. And what Jesus understood is that finances were going to be important if you were going to follow Jesus. And so he talks about money a lot, and we don't always like that. So we tend to maybe leave parables a little bit at length. All that said, would we do a little bit of work with parables, I think we can figure them out. And I think they have the ability to move and to um, get at us a little bit. Today we're going to look at one particular parable. It's actually in a series of parables. We're going to try to pull it out exclusively, and that is the parable of the talents. If you remember, just a quick rehab. Recap: A master gives three different servants uh, a certain amount of money so that while he leaves they can take care of it. To one servant he gives one talent, to another servant he gives two talents, and to another servant he gives five talents. He goes away and when he comes back he tries to see what these servants have done with his money. And the servant who has five talents has made five more talents, so he's doubled the investment. The servant with two talents has made another two talents, so he has also doubled the investment. But the servant with one talent buried the money in a field and did nothing with it. And so when the master came back, he just gave him back his talent. And the master curses this servant. Now again, because we're looking at this 2,000 years later, there's a couple of details we've got to get and I want to deal with before I read the story. Number one, what is a talent worth? We tend to think of a talent as a small amount of money. How many of you have that impression? A talent is kind of a small amount of money? We, we tend to think that in our head. Let me give you what a talent really is. A talent is worth 6,000 denarii. That clears it up, right? 6,000 denarii. No, we don't know what a denarii is. So, let me further. A denarius is, it was the common, uh, was the common uh, wage for one day of work one day of work okay so when we talk about six thousand denarii we are talking about six thousand days of work talking about years of wages okay in today's economy if we kind of take rough averages a talent would be worth about three hundred and sixty thousand dollars So get this in your head before we read the story. We're not talking about, like, here, I'll give you five bucks, I'll give you ten bucks, I'll give you 25 bucks. No, we're talking about a ton of money. We're talking about $360,000 to the first servant, $720,000 to the second servant, and $1.8 million to the third servant. Okay? So, grandiose number. Has everybody got that real quick? We misinterpret this parable because we often think it's a little bit of money. It's not. It's a lot of money. Second thing you need to understand is that to double your investment takes a lot of risk. Okay, we, we, we've all probably seen stuff on compound interest and over a long period of tough time you can double your investment. But when we talk about doubling $1.8 million and we're not sure how much time passes in the story talking about some risky investment. See, the the more you risk in your investment, the higher the returns, but you can also lose your money. So you have to understand, when we talk about servants doubling the money that they have, we're talking about people that are taking big risks with that money. They're risking it all, they're laying it all on the line to get a bigger return. This is a very aggressive investment strategy to double your money in a shorter period of time. Having said that, now let's read the story. Remember the big numbers. Remember the kind of intensity you would have to invest to double your money. And let's see if the story starts to take a little bit different shape for you. Matthew chapter 25. For it will be, time out, it is like the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking here about the kingdom of God and how he's leaving and giving the kingdom to his people. And then he's going to come back. If we we had more time, I could spell that out in a bunch of the different parables. That's what he means by it to start. It would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, again, remember, $1.8 million. To another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He would receive the five talents, went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying to the master, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. He also who received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. Then at my coming I should at least have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, who, who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant out into utter outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this master gives a ton of money, trusts a ton of money, his whole estate to his servants. This is not something you would commonly do, by the way. Normally you would have family and friends that you could, you'd have family that you could leave your estate to. To give them to your servants, to people that work for you, would be odd. It would be strange and it would not commonly be done. Two servants go out, and with some risky investment, it would have had to have taken double their money. The other one goes and buries it in a field. That sounds weird to us, but remember, there's not really a lot of banks in these days. There's obvious from Jesus' words some places where you could put your money to earn interest, but normally you didn't just set your money in a bank or in in, um, some kind of investment growth stock or something. There's not all that stuff. There is interest, there is some of these... Early banking habits. But actually, burying stuff is pretty common. If you had something that was rare, something you had to take care of, burying it and hiding it was not a bad thing to do if all you cared about was taking care of it and didn't have interest. We have other stories in the Bible where people take belongings and bury them. This is pretty common practice, but of course, that's not what the servant should have done. And so in Act 2, Jesus sort of comes, or the, the Master really is definitely representing Jesus here, comes back and says to the, the two men, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Master. Jesus is saying that it's good and faithful to take risks, to do something with the talents that you have. Now it's interesting for us that the word talents can mean two things, right? It can mean this reference to money, but it can also mean your gifts and your abilities. This parable is much about much more than money, although it definitely has an element of money in it. Yeah, the parable is saying, "God gives you a lot, not a little, not five bucks. God gives you a lot. God gives you gifts, and gives you talents, and gives you finances. It gives you things that you're responsible for that are his. But that we take care of, we call that stewardship. You're a steward of your family. You're a steward of your job. We are a steward of this church. That God gives us lots to take care of, not little, lots. Now, does He give everyone the same talents, the same responsibilities? No. God gives to different people different abilities, different gifts, different passions, different strengths, different responsibilities. Some have more, some have less. But still, the point of the parable is that God gives everyone lots. Maybe some more, maybe some different, but gives us all lots that we have to take care of. And God's expectation of us is that we will do something with it. It's not good to just bury it and sit on it. No, God actually wants us to do lots with it. To take big risks. It is good and faithful to take risks, to try, to try and even maybe sometimes fail big. And God is saying, if you're if you're faithful in a little, I'm gonna give you more. But with that third servant who's not faithful, he takes it away. And I love this phrase: enter the joy of your master. What does that mean? The master is saying, Hey, you can enjoy this like it's your own. And you can be excited about this. Maybe you've been at places where you've worked, where you were employed, where if you made a lot of extra money or the company did really well over a quarter, it didn't really matter to you because you couldn't enjoy any of that, right? You might, not, you might be hoping for a bonus, but you were never quite sure of it. Jesus, is not like, Jesus does not treat us like employees He gives us ownership and responsibility of it so that when there's a return, we can be excited just as if it was our own. Enter the joy of your master. But this third servant, what's his excuse? Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here have what is yours. But you see, God feels cheated by that. The master feels cheated by that. Because I didn't just give you that, I gave you that to do something with it. So you can't just say, Here, have what is yours, because I'm taking a loss on all this other that I wish you had gained for me. This third servant was motivated by fear. He saw God as crushing and judgmental, not abundant. It's a little different view, isn't it? I mean, do you feel like God is judgmental? That God is holding stuff back from you? Or do you feel like God has abundantly blessed and given you lots of opportunities? Because how you view God is going to directly affect the attitude you have towards God and how you respond. Do we move out of fear By the way, both servants, all these servants have the right perspective on God. God does have pretty high expectations. God does reap all kinds of places where he doesn't sow. God really can be a judgmental God. But we live on the other side of Easter, knowing that God takes that judgment upon himself. Both pictures of God are true in this story. But the dominant one for God is this joy one. It is enter into my joy. We serve a God who's going to take on the wages of sin for us. And so when we hold back, when we bury, when we don't take responsibility for the things that God has, taken, has given us, we are lazy. And not just lazy. God calls this servant wicked. Wicked for holding back. Wicked for cheating God out of the God's yield. Out of what God should have gotten out of the gifts. Is it work to develop your gifts? Yes. Is it work to steward your families? Yes. Is it work to develop your church? Yes. And the easy way, the lazy way, is just to bury it and to not do the work. To not take the risk. To not take the chance. But that is not the way. That God calls us to be. In fact, this servant gets a very harsh chastising at the end. And he loses what he had, and God gives it to somebody who's going to do something with it. And so understand this parable in its context. Jesus is talking about his departure. Jesus is right now, where we're getting towards the end of Matthew, he is preparing his disciples for him leaving. And he's saying, I'm going to go away, just like. Just like this master. And I'm going to give you my kingdom. And I'm going to give you gifts. And I'm going to give you talents. And I'm expecting you to do something with them. And I'm going to return. I'm going to come back someday. And you're going to have to give an account. And my expectation is that you're going to do something with them. You're going to take some risks. You're going to go big. Understanding the story this way. I think this has four questions for us to ask today. First of all, what is your view of God? Is, is God angry? Is God just a judge that expects a lot, a cruel master? Or is God a God that invites you into the joy that he has? He has a high view of people. Again, I think both views of God are actually true in the scripture. But the joy of God is the one that's the dominant. That God is willing to deal with what he has to judge on himself so that we can fully enter into his grace. And number two, what is your view of yourself? For a lot of us, we, we, we have a sense that maybe God didn't give us a lot. God gave us a lot of work to do, but not a lot of responsibility, not a lot of gifts. Maybe, maybe it's because some of us have brothers and sisters or friends that did so much and got so popular and got so much response and we've just never lived up to all those expectations. But God does not look at you and see you as not good enough. God gives you more than you could ever imagine to do in your life. and Because he wants to be there with you along the way to get those things done. If God has such a high view of you, how dare you have a low view of yourself? And if God has such a high view of other people, how dare we judge others? when God trusts them with so much as well. Third question is, what are you doing with your talents? Have you been handling your money and your time in such a way that it gets a return from God? Are you developing your abilities and your passions? What have you done to strengthen the gifts that God has given you? What have you done to develop the opportunities to share your faith with other people, to live your life out in such a way that it has an impact on others? I wish we had had a story. I wish one of these servants had lost it, had lost their talents, but had lost it really trying. Because that's the the question I have. What if a servant had tried big and failed? But maybe one of the things Jesus is telling us in this story is that there's not a lot of fail when you try. That God takes part in this to help you with the the response, with the return. What God wants is you to try to take big risks, to take on things that you don't think is possible. This, by the way, is one of the big drivers in my life. I hate regrets. I don't like, I don't like living and knowing that I held back. That's just one of the things I dislike. One of the phrases, I wore my March Madness tie today. I love March Madness. One of the things I like is that these players just play so hard. Because the season's on the line. And one of the phrases we had when I used to coach basketball was, leave it all out on the court. Don't hold anything back. You can be tired tomorrow. Leave it all out on the court. Go for it. Are you leaving it all out on the court in your faith and in your life? Final question is, what is your motivation? If you are really trying, or if you're not, what is the ultimate reason behind that? What is your motivation? Is it guilt? Is it fear? Is it because you feel you have to? You must, you should. I have figured out that Christianity does not work as a, fear, as, as a fear factor. It doesn't work as a should, as a have to. It only works as a love response. It works best when we work so hard because we're trying to enter the joy of our master. See, the point of the parable is that Jesus is coming back. You're going to have to give an account someday of what you've done with what God has given you. But I think Jesus is also saying that that doesn't have to scare you. I hope you see it as an opportunity, as an adventure to enter into the joy of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be good stewards of our lives, of the gifts, of the abilities, of the finances, of the opportunities that you've given us. In our own lives and as a church, may we be what you want us to be and may the return be Your glory. Give us the joy of being your servants. And of taking care of what is yours. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen.